Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Thanks for so welcome too. I um, grew up in a church in Ipswich. Don't boo at me just yet. Uh, grew up in a church in Ipswich that our 6 p.m. service was very similar to this in terms of size and full of young adults and stuff. And I, I felt really at home here. And I have spent most of my ministry life uh, in youth and young adults ministry, even kids ministry stuff, challenging young adults about how to live and be disciples in, in a current world that's difficult to do that. Uh, and my, my passion as the discipleship pastor at Gateway is to get not just young adults, so I reckon there's a fire in young adults built in to share their faith with others, but it's about getting adults, no matter what age we are, to get passionate about sharing our faith with someone else. I often get asked by young adults, and I work with our young adults, Pastor Lauren Lucas, a lot. How do we, like young adults will say, oh, my faith's a bit flat at the moment. And my, my first response is always, so who are you telling your faith to? <laughs> because when we share our faith with someone else, that's what births something in us about our own faith. If we're sitting there trying to consume, consume, consume faith, consume the Bible, without actually putting it into action, without actually sharing it with someone else. Our faith isn't so alive as we think it is. So every time someone asks me, Brad, how do I get my faith alive? I say, who's the person you're going to share the good news with? And that's what I'm passionate about. And I reckon that's, the, that's where discipleship starts. So hopefully tonight, uh, tonight is like a soothing balm. I'm not going to challenge you too much. Because I've been really challenged at the start of this year in the midst of me wanting to do all kinds of new things. I've signed up to the gym. There's a new gym that opened up near me. Five bucks a week. It's unbelievable. Yeah, Planet Fitness, anyone else? Go, okay, great. I don't want to become a junkie. I'm not going to sell Planet Fitness. I've been once. I've done my introduction. I've gone. It was hard work. My, my New Year's resolution was to get a bit more fit. It's not going so great. On January 3rd, I went to the gym. It's January 30. I haven't done such a great job. I've gone for walks and stuff since then, but I haven't quite got this New Year's resolution down. Pat, my plan A for the year was to get fit and slow down a bit. Um, I'm not going great at either of those things. I don't know what it is about a New Year's resolution. On January 1st, we go, it's a new year, new me. I'm going to do all these kind of things I missed out doing last year. I'm going to travel more. I'm going to get fit this year. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to do a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to do, 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 do. All kinds of new things this year because I can be more and do more than I was last year. And some of those things are really good. Some of them are setting up rhythms of reading your Bible. Some of them are slowing down, spending more time with Jesus. Some of them are, I actually do need to get a bit more fit. So it's not a bad plan at all. But my question for us tonight is this. Why do our New Year's resolutions on January 1st seem to suffer quite quickly? Has anyone made a New Year's resolution? It just, oh, no one's bright enough to admit it. Okay, just in your, own, in your own quietness of your own heart. How's your New Year's resolution going one month in? If it's anything like me, it's not great. What is it about a news, a big plan A for 2022 has its wheels off? Gyms that are crowded on January 3rd aren't going great on February 3rd, and by August 3rd, absolute ghost towns. What is with that? I reckon we begin the year going, I want me to be a better version of myself this coming year. I'm going to try and do as much as I can. I'm going to try and start that small business by this day. I'm going to try and lose this amount of weight. We try and set goals and cram so much of stuff into our life uh, that we uh, don't have much margin left. And when we don't have much margin left, there's little space for the things that don't have our complete and full and undivided attention. See, our plan A at New Year's often fails because it means we have to do more in the year. So if our plan A is about doing more, I want to ask this. What's your plan B? 
I'm not saying what's your second option. What is your plan B, E, your plan B this year? How are you going to be more present with God and be more present with one another this year? We are in the, well, we're coming up to the second last week of our Summer Psalm series, and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Jason's preaching here next week, isn't he? I, I heard him preach. Uh, I actually don't know what, he's pre- what psalm he's preaching on, but the psalm he preached at Mackenzie last week, uh, there's been this, this kind of golden thread through all the psalm messages I've heard across our Gateway series this, this January uh, that I think God's trying to speak something to us in season. See, I'm going to pick Psalm 27 today. I think Derek Peters picked that here as well. But I, I think we're going to talk about it in slightly different ways because there's a, there's a word that God wants to bring out of it for us to hear and hear again. And I think the word is through uh, looking at King David's life. We'll see that uh, there was one priority that David decided that he was going to be with God. He was going to dwell with God. I'm going to read it in Psalm 27. So you can look on the screen behind me, or if you've got your Bible there, I really encourage you to rip it out and read along with me. I'm going to read the whole of Psalm 27 because it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of text. Let's read. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this one thing, do, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy and I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. It's a beautiful psalm. It's one of my favourites. And there are two verses in this psalm that I think are trying to speak to us in our do, do, do kind of culture we live in in the 21st century. See, in verse 4, David claims there is just one thing that he wants. What is it? The one thing I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. See, the word dwell here for me, I don't know what the word dwell conjures up for you, but for me, it conjures up pictures of family. It conjures up pictures of not just a dwelling place, but a place where I feel known, comfortable at home, safe and secure. A place where all of me is loved and accepted. It's not a promise of having a dwelling place that life will be easy there. But at the end of the day, in the midst of every circumstance in this uncertain age, David finds his heart and his home with God to see his beauty, his kindness, and even his forgiveness. 
And the second verse, verse, the second verse I want to chat about in verse 14 that closes out the psalm says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. See, wait for me has got, well, actually wait in the, the text of the people hearing this originally has got two meanings. There's the, there's the physical posture of waiting. Think of like a waiter, someone who has that, that, I forgot the word of this this morning as well. What's this thing called? Tea towel. What's the fancy word for a tea towel? Tea towel. And they kind of come up and they come ready to serve at the beck and call of whoever is uh, needing to be waited on. Can I help you, sir? Can I help you, man? Someone who is ready and willing to help and serve someone else. There's a, the, the practical posture of having your hands ready to serve the needs of someone else. But it's also the internal aspect of waiting as well. We wait and we long for things sometimes, but it's also about turning our heart, posturing our heart to be open and ready and able to respond to the will of God. See, uh, when we align our external practice in our internal heart, uh, that's when uh, our, our full attention gets focused on the Lord. We are ready to wait upon His every command and His every need. But this kind of waiting, this kind of being totally ready to both receive and to serve uh, means that our own ambitions and our own plans, our own hopes, our own desires, our own failures and our own flaws all have to take a back seat. Everything else takes a back seat so that we are fully present to God. And we'll see in a second that David, who wrote this beautiful psalm, didn't always get this right, but he always, always comes back to God to dwell with him, repents of his sin and repostures himself to wait upon the Lord. And I think this is the key why David is called a man after God's own heart, right? Uh, his, his heart and even the deep sins he commits, and we'll read them in a minute, uh, and his family line is even blessed with the love of Jesus generations later. Why? Because he would reposture himself before the Lord to say, God, I'm yours. I'm with you. Be with me. He wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord, to be with God. And I reckon there's no better picture of this actually working out in David's life than in Psalm 51. See, the words of the song we're about to read in Psalm 51 come at a funny time in David's life. See, he was whisked from obscurity. He was the, the youngest kid from the tribe from nowhere in, the, in a backwater. And he gets told, you're going to be the new king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. Everyone's thinking, what, this kid? No way. Um, so he kind of is this little kid from nowhere, and then he gets asked to come up and play the lyre and sing for King Saul, because King Saul's a bit of a, a, as we read, a bit of a here and two kind of king. And when he's ang in anguish, David comes in and begins to play soothingly, you know, kind of just to soothe the, the king's worried heart. But not only this, there's that great story where uh, the, the Israelite army is fighting the Philistines, and everyone's scared of, we you know it, Goliath, the big guy, right? And King, or not King David at this stage, David's walking along trying to bring uh, the armour to his brothers who are fighting in battle. And he's the only one who says, oh yeah, I can take him. <laughs> and he whips out the little rock, puts it in his slingshot, flings it, kills Goliath, drops dead. And suddenly this kid from nowhere who's got a beautiful singing voice is also a great warrior of great renown. See, David from the middle of nowhere is starting to get accolades. He's doing a lot. He's beginning to, to put in his basket a whole bunch of accolades and things that he's good at and achievements of his life. So he begins to get a bit of a renown uh, across the land and King Saul begins to get a little bit jealous. We enter a series in, in David's life where he is fleeing for his life constantly. King Saul knows about this prophecy about him becoming king and chases him right across the countryside for, for days, weeks, months, years. 
And in those caves as he's hiding, David writes some songs, God, save me from my enemies. We hear all about those kind of words. But it begins this series in David's life where he is running for his life. Uh, we'll skip forward a bit. King Saul is no longer king. He's deposed. Uh, and uh, King David is anointed, or David is anointed King David. He becomes king. In the midst of all of these things that he has done, all the battles he's won, all the songs he's sung, all the renown he's collecting, he's now at the top of the pyramid, right? He is King David, the one everyone looks to, the God's own mouthpiece to the people. And in this moment when he's got everything going for him, everything going right for him, he stuffs up in the most tragic and terrible way. He sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba. He desires her. He takes her gets her pregnant. And in the midst of finding out she's pregnant, he tries to, to make sure that her husband Uriah comes back from the battlefront to be in the right place at the right time so the baby could be his. That plan fails, doesn't work. So what does he do? He sends this man, Uriah, to the front lines of the battlefield. What happens on the front lines of the battlefield? Your chances of survival are pretty slim. Uriah dies. This is the man after God's own heart, a murderer. Someone who, who has stolen another man's wife. Why do we call David a man after God's own heart? Well, the prophet Nathan hears the, has these events revealed to him and he confronts David. And in that moment when his sin and his shame is found out in the midst, in the most public way, David is completely and utterly broken. The shame of what he has done catches up with him and his internal life becomes bankrupt. He has nothing left. David is completely and utterly broken by his terrible sin, utterly destroyed in his inner being. But the difference here that we don't see in many or any of the other kings of Israel is that he repents. It's your repentance and forgiveness and a desire to dwell, to be whole with God, to be redeemed by him is the difference here. And I want to read, as I read Psalm 51, I want you to hear the words of this psalm, the depth of pain in this man's voice. Imagine it's David singing this or reading this aloud. Hear the pain and repentance of David. Hear the words of a man so utterly broken, who has done terrible things, realize the depth of his sin, but who knows the boundless redemption of the one he has dwelt with his entire life. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. 
And verse 17 goes on to say, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Can you hear it? In the words of this song, the brokenness of David's life. And I wonder if there are moments in our life when we could sing the same song from our own heart. When our own shame and the terrible things we do, and let's be honest, we all have terrible things that we do because it's part of our fallen human broken nature. Would this be a song that our heart sings? But in David's case here, it's not a hopeful wishing that a distant God would forgive him. It's an admission of a friend, of someone he's intimately close with, someone he's dwelt his whole life with, who's seen him go through all kinds of different circumstances. It's, it's an admission of going, God, I have stuffed up, but I know of your great love and I need it right now. It's a difference of a, it's not a wishful hoping. It's an admission of coming to the one who knows him, the one who can have his traitorous and broken heart renewed, the one that can keep him holy and keep him in holiness. See, do we, like David, in those moments when we can sing a song like Psalm 51, do we seek the embrace and the healing of our God who loves us? Or do we run? Knowing this embrace of God like David did only comes from knowing intimately, dwelling consistently with the one who's only ever wanted to make us whole. See, David's plan A was on track, but it got ruined pretty mightily. And unlike most of us, David has his um, successes and his failures plastered over across the walls of history. But David understood something about being with or dwelling with God that I think is important for us to hear today when all we want to do is move on to the next thing. See, David's plan B was to be with God and be in right relationship with him, despite how his plan A turned out. And because he dwelt with God regularly throughout his life, he saw the beauty of God firsthand. He saw, uh, David was able to see God's forgiveness, his kindness, his repentance. He was able to be restored. He was able to see the wholeness only God can bring. He saw God's kindness when he had no right to see God's kindness because of his sin. And God was able to put to rest and remove and make him clean of that sin and let him come alive again. This is what it means to dwell with God, to stop doing things in our own strength, to stop striving and just be with God because he wants to be with us. For David... This meant going to the tabernacle, the holy tent of God to worship, to bring a physical sacrifice and to bring a sacrifice of praise and be made right. Thankfully, we don't need to go to Jerusalem or a tent or even to this beautiful room here to do that. We've not long ago had Christmas and I'm a Christmas junkie. I used to be a Christmas critic, actually. I hated Christmas. I was a Christmas Grinch until this gripped my heart is that we sing carol after carol across Christmas about Emmanuel, God with us, God making his dwelling among us. That's what really got me about Christmas. See, we sing about Emmanuel, the one who chose to be with us. John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, he pitched his tent among us. 
He tabernacles with us right now. The God who radically forgave David is not distant, but is present right here, right now. If dwelling with God opened up David to be made right with God, how much more willing is God likely to be to forgive us of our sins and make us right because he's here with us to forgive us forgiveness and give us rest? So my question is this. What is your plan B going to be this year? My plan B is to be more present with Jesus. It's all I can do. See, the pattern of Jesus' life himself, he regularly went to quiet places uh, to pray, lonely places to be with God. See, he would talk with his heavenly father. He would be with God because he wanted to dwell with him and wait upon him. When we are present with Jesus, we are positioned to receive everything God wants to give us. And what is it he wants to give us? Matthew 11 tells us, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants us just to be with him so that we can find rest in and with him to find rest from our striving in this life. See, in the passage, the yoke that he talks about is that heavy crossbar. You probably know this. About, it's a crossbar that would lay over the top of two ox, two oxen as they would plough the field. they go side by side. And this yoke would go across their necks to keep them in step with one another. And they keep towing the heavy equipment they're carrying. But Jesus says that he has a yoke to come inside beside us, step by step, that we fall into step with the one who loves us. Yet he says it's a yoke, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. See, it's a yoke that's a non-yoke. It's a, it's a burden that's a non-burden. It's something that keeps us in step with the one who wants to give us and bring us life. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, it's a highly recommended read, by the way, a really great read, Gentle and Lowly, by Dane Ortland, describes it like telling a drowning person they have to put on a life jacket. Only for them to shout back from the waters that's drowning them to say, no way, not for me. I can't possibly take on a life jacket right now. Don't you see how busy I am drowning? (laughs) It's crazy. This thing, this burden that they would have to put on across them would be the very thing that saves their life. Jesus is offering us a yoke as well that we would put on the fall in step with him and it would give us rest from our striving. It's a yoke of kindness because an easy life isn't always an option but a yoke of kindness and an easy yoke is. It's a free gift from Jesus. It's a yoke of kindness that enfolds us into the embrace, the tender embrace of being with Christ. Dane Ortland says in the book, he says, the minimum bar for being enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is to simply open yourself up to him. It's all that he needs and is indeed the only thing he works with. See, Jesus doesn't open himself up to those who've got a great theology or those who come to church every week or those who've got a good bank balance or those who have achieved everything in life or those who are happy. He doesn't open himself up to those who have pastor as their title. He doesn't open himself up to those who've got all their ducks in a row and we have to get everything right before coming to Jesus. No, no, no. See, it's our very burdens that are what qualifies us to come in the first place. No payment is required. 
He says, I will give you rest. There's no transaction required at all. His rest is a gift. So whether you're actively trying to arm wrestle, I feel like this all the time, you're trying to arm wrestle your life under control. Anyone get, the, get this feeling with me? You're trying to get everything under control, have all, all under control and what you need. You're arm wrestling life into, into submission. Or whether you're passively finding yourself weighed down by inevitable and unforeseen circumstances, Jesus desires that you find rest in him and simply be with him. In a world where we try and get all the shopping from the car boot in one trip. Anyone with me on this? You kind of get as much as you possibly can. I'm not going to leave a single bag in that boot. And you walk up the stairs and by the time you get to the top, you've got blood coming out of your fingers, right? You try and do it because we want to be able to move on to the next thing. We don't have to go back and do something we've done before. In a world where we spend so much time just flipping through, I've, I've discovered reels. I'm a bit slow to the party, right? I said I'll never get on TikTok, but this week I've, I saw a funny cat video. I'm no joke, a cat scared someone and they threw all their stuff in the air, weird. It got me hooked. I've been watching reels all week, which is dumb. In a world where I can sit there half an hour strolling funny videos of people farting or people doing cat stuff, um, or people getting like, trail bike fails and smacking their heads on trees. Maybe that's my algorithm. Tells me something about me, doesn't it? In a world where I can just keep doing that for hours and hours on end, where I get a notification about the next sale. We had a, just had a uh, Black Friday sales, pre-Christmas sales, Christmas sales, Boxing Day sales, Australia Day sales in a month and a half. It's crazy. In a world where we are consciously or unconsciously told to do more, experience more, get more, buy more, do more, where everything and everyone is vying for our complete and unadulterated attention, we have lost the art of simply being of being present to one another and to God. We've lost the art of being quiet. We've lost the art of being simple, of simply being. And I reckon if we just stopped, really stopped for half a second, we would hear or get that impression of God that still small voice trying to get our attention, Brad, I'm here. See, being present to God means he's the one who gets our full attention. As John Mark Comer puts it in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he says that attention is the beginning of devotion. I think there's no better picture of devotion than in my favourite movie of all time, Wally. Anyone love Wally in the house? Great. It's honestly would be in my top three movies of all time. And when I was a youth pastor in Ipswich, so it wasn't taken so well, uh, every, the first night of youth group every year, I would actually get our youth group to stop, sit down, and watch all of Wally. One, because I liked it, but two, I think it's got a great message. Wally's this little trash compactor robot who goes around a deserted planet Earth, packing up trash, making towers, right? And out of the blue, out of nowhere, from the sky above and the heavens above from a spaceship comes this amazing, sleek, beautiful, brand new robot called Eva. Oh man, she's sleek, she's super, super clean. She can shoot lasers out of her fingers. She can do all these kind of cool things and Wally is completely smitten. They've got a bit of a a journey to go on to kind of get to know each other. But after a while of, of Eva searching for what she's searching for, a plant, right? This plant life on earth is there, she's searching for it. After a long time of her searching for it and Wally trying to get her attention, they become friends. 
And they start to become so committed to one another. And then suddenly, out of the middle of nowhere, Eva finds a plant. And bang. Remember the scene? It goes inside her. She shuts up shop and she becomes completely still. Unresponsive. And Wally's like... You know that the scene where he's looking around going, whoa. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> suddenly, she's just stock standing still. But what does he do? He doesn't leave her alone. Remember this great scene, it's like a montage where he puts her in a shopping trolley and he grabs her by the, well, tries to grab her by the hand and begins to row her down the river to make sure she didn't miss out on the, on the riverboat cruise. Remember when it's raining, he actually stands next to her and puts a little umbrella over her and holds it so she doesn't get wet. Remember the scene when it's Christmas and he puts Christmas lights around her so that she can enjoy Christmas too. Wally is completely and utterly and completely devoted to Eva. It's a beautiful picture. Not only a beautiful picture of how we can be devoted to one another like this. And I would ask my youth group kids, can you be a Wally this year? And it kind of got us a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a cultural thing going on in our youth group. Kids didn't love it after about two years. They said, Craig, can we do something else, please? But this, this call of, are you being a Wally right now, was a catch cry of our youth group. But it's also an incredible picture of in our life when we are completely unresponsive to God who loves us and knows us, of how he comes alongside us and will never let us go. He, ne- he is so devoted to us that there is nothing more we can do. We can be completely unresponsive, yet God will still come to us in the midst of where we are and be devoted to us. What a picture. I love Wally. Go watch it tonight after you go to Sushi Edo. If God is that willing to be with us, even in our most unresponsive state, how will you be more devoted to be more with Jesus this year? How will you fix your attention on him and be devoted to him to simply be more with him this year? It's not a question that I can answer for you. It's actually nothing you'll get from a pulpit or a sermon series you, you might binge or listen to during the week. Because the realisation of how you be present to God can only come in your own time and only comes if you open yourself up to wait on him and say, God, I want to be with you. Show me how. Nothing I can say will help that process. It's a heart cry of your own, a desperation to be devoted to the one who is devoted to you. I spent most of my 20s saying yes to absolutely everything. I started my ministry career um, as a chaplain. I've been serving at, at a youth group, probably was giving 28, 30 hours a week um, as, as a volunteer because I love these ragtag, ragtag rebels of Ipswich. I was a volunteer youth pastor there for 10 years, committed to it, loved it, every week in, week out. Um, I ran our youth band. I would preach, uh, our minister really sadly passed away on us in the middle of his placement. And for, for about a year and a half, we were without a minister and I was either preaching, worship leading or hosting or doing all three sometimes because that was all we had left. Uh, I was saying yes to everything because I believed in the mission of the local church. I was a chaplain. That's what got my first paid ministry job. I was a chaplain for 12 months and then I decided at the end of 12 months, I love this chaplaincy gig so much. I want to do another four schools. So I did five schools in a week, which was mental. Um, Four primary schools, half a day each, bang, 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 right around the countryside. Uh, It was difficult, really tough, and SU doesn't let you do that anymore because it was a dumb idea. I also said yes to to everything under the sun, like things like radio. I did some radio in Toowoomba for about eight months. 
I thought, yeah, I can fit that into a Friday. So I would get up really early, rocket up the range to Toowoomba, uh, record about eight-ish hours of audio um, <clears throat> as quickly as I possibly could, close down the recording, rocket back down the range to Ipswich so I could be ready for youth band rehearsal at 4 p.m. Um, I would do all, I would say yes to everything. Every minute of every day was full of doing great, incredible things for God. But my pastor, who was an incredible friend of mine, she, she pulled me aside one day and said, Brad, if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to rocket towards a burnout cliff and never come back. And I was like, yeah, right, watch me. Like, I, I, I can take this on. I've got all the skills and talents. Like King David, I've accumulated a whole bucket and a whole bucket of incredible gifts and talents and experiences along the way. I don't need to slow down. But my relationship with Jesus on the inside was beginning to utterly crumble. See, my relationship with Jesus was what I imagine house, guy housemates who kind of don't like each other much anymore to be like. See, gee, I would come home at the end of the day in my inner world and I'd be like exhausted and Jesus is like, Brad, you're home. Welcome home. I've made a, a massive dinner for you. I want to spend some time with you. And as I'm walking in the door, I'm like, Jesus, don't you know how hard a day it's been serving you right now? I'm just going to go get these Cheetos off the bench and go up to my room. And I would go upstairs, eat Cheetos, get crumbs everywhere in the bed, fall asleep, get up early, go do the same thing again. My life with Jesus, my inner world was, I was still dwelling in God's presence, but I wasn't being with him, if that makes sense. There is a difference. And if there's anything to get out of tonight, is to begin to ask yourself, am I, what am I doing with my life? Am I actually dwelling with God and being with him, or am I just existing next to him? It's an important question for your life. My relationship with Jesus was pretty bankrupt. So I got invited to go on a retreat, which I wasn't really keen on going. I didn't really want to go on a retreat because it means about slowing down. I wanted to do more. But my relationship with Jesus and my inner world was beginning to crumble. I was feeling incredibly crispy and burnt out, even though I didn't want to admit it. And the first day of this retreat is a full day of silent solitude, prayer, and fasting. I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to do this stuff. <laughs> I don't want to have to confront the inner, inner world because I was already feeling like a fraud, surrounded by incredible great Christian leaders who were doing incredible things. Their ministries were way better than mine. I felt like this fraud in that moment. But I went and sat and walked down the banks of the Yarra River and sat out on a rock in the middle of the river. And I sat out there beginning to feel like an absolute fraud, beginning to feel like my inner life and inner world was bankrupt. And my world began to un unravel around me. Just like King David, my inner world didn't match my outer world anymore. It was like a, a cancer of the soul beginning to, to bankrupt me even more, to make me even crispier. And in that moment, as I was confronted by these thoughts, and I, I, I think it's God trying to get my attention, I watched a bee fly down onto the rock and land on the rock and crawl down the water's edge and begin to drink water. And it was a mind blow moment because whoever stops long enough to see a bee drink water, bees need to drink. And in that moment was the closest I've ever heard the audible voice of God. It's like, yeah, but Brad, if I care enough about a bee to meet its needs, how much more do I care about you? And on that rock in the Yarra, in the Yarra River, my life just began to completely unravel. I, I, I saw this picture of myself at the top of a well with a really shiny bucket made up of great experiences of things that I accumulated and things that I've done across my whole life. 
shiny and I was dipping into that well and splashing it around, giving people a taste of what Jesus is like, showing people a foretaste of the kingdom of God, things they could be involved in, helping them create their own shiny buckets as well. It was my calling in life to equip young people to be involved with ministry and do things like that. And then I, as I'm dishing that, I'm getting splashed. It looks like I'm drinking of it too, but I'm just getting on the outside. And I just felt God say, but Brad, do you know how sweet the water tastes? In the midst of my doing, 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 doing kind of life, I'd forgotten and never really stopped to be with God. And in that moment, I realized that every good ministry thing that I'd done in my life up to that moment had been done entirely in my own strength. Talk about being a fraud. And in that moment, as my life unraveled on that rock, God stepped into my life and was like a soothing balm. He showed me kindness when I had no right to feel God's kindness. I was about to be so bankrupt in my inner world that I was about to jump out of ministry if I hadn't pulled up at the last minute or God hadn't intervened at the last minute. See, I had this unwritten script in my life that I needed to do more to earn, or, or do more to earn God's love or prove to God that I was worthy of his love. That's not in Scripture. I don't know where I got that from. It's not from my parents. I don't know where I got it from. But it's not real. It's not right. There is nothing more we need to do to earn God's love. He just wants to be with us. That moment changed the trajectory of my life. That rock in the middle of the Yarra River, I go and look at it every now and then whenever I'm in Melbourne. And I enjoy looking at that rock because it changed the trajectory of my life. We're about to worship in a minute, but I want to ask this question. How are you going to be with God this year? Are you going to choose to, in the midst of a doing kind of life that we sometimes can't avoid, are you going to choose to be with God as the one priority of your life like David chose to be? To dwell in his presence to gaze upon his beauty and his kindness and his forgiveness in those moments. Because here, it's important to hear that just existing in his presence is enough for God. Just existing as his child, as someone who is loved, forgiven and free is enough for God. Now I've got a rock at Snapper Rocks down the coast that's a bit more accessible that I go and sit on. And we often hear Jason, our senior pastor, talk about his milk crate, that he goes and sits by the dam and sits on his milk crate. And he says, wherever you go to be with God, go there and go there often. Be with God. Timothy Keller posted on Instagram around Christmas time. He said this, Buddha's final words, strive unceasingly. Jesus' final words, it is finished. I don't know who needs to hear this tonight, but please hear that you don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to arm wrestle your life into control. 
You don't have to do anything or pretend to have it all together on the outside or even have it all together on the inside. Jesus just wants to be with you. You don't need to strive anymore. You don't need to have a perfect plan A. You don't need to go to this place or a temple to be with Jesus. See, 2 Peter Peter 1 verse 3 tells us, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. He chooses us. He chooses to give us His own glory and His goodness. He chooses to give us rest out of His kindness. And He is right here, right now, in this moment. And I wonder that right now we need to just dwell with God for a minute. So I want to invite you just to close your eyes right where you are. And begin to shut out distractions around you. And just stop. And be. And in this moment, we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Come, Holy Spirit. You might want to picture your heart unfurling like a flower to be open to God. You might want to reach out your hands in front of you with palms up to receive from God right now. And we ask Holy Spirit, speak to us. We just want to be with you. If in this moment, just between you and God, you want to say, I want to be with you, Jesus. I wonder if you'd pray this along with me in your own heart. Jesus, I just want to be with you. Show me how. I confess that I just want to do more. Show me how to be with you. I confess that I haven't got it all together. That my life can be a mess just like King David's. 
but I just want to be with you that you might make me right again, that you might make me whole again. I desire, Jesus, just to be with you. And I choose, I choose, I choose to put my heart open in front of you that you might speak, that you might heal, that you might comfort, that you might show your kindness to me even though I don't deserve it. Make me whole, Jesus, and help me to be with you. We pray this, believing it's something you want us to pray in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We've lost the art of slowing down, of stopping and being with the one who only wants to be with us. I challenge you in the days and weeks ahead to take those moments, to find those moments in the middle of your busy life, just stop and be with the one who wants to be with you. We're about to worship our God and it's a bit of an older song. But as we sing it, I really want to encourage you just to, again, shut out everything else in the room, shut out the musicians. And as we sing, imagine your heart connecting with the very heart of God. Open your heart to Him. And He might speak to you and bring healing to your life and show you how to be with Him. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.